Well, good. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're considering together the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in our third week thinking about it. We're going to be here for quite a while. Last week, we started looking at the Beatitudes together, and we had some some thoughts regarding the Beatitudes just in general. And we looked at the first of the the eight Beatitudes, uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today, we're going to look at two more of these statements. Um, But before we get started, we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12 together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as we look at this text, we see uh, Jesus pronouncing God's favor. Jesus, Jesus speaking the truth of who God is through the favor that's given to those who are in Christ. Those who have accepted, who, who uh, understand who they are, who have trusted Jesus. Um, the blessing comes. God's favor comes first. So it's important to remember why Matthew records Jesus starting with the Beatitudes. This is important, and it sets up everything that we're talking about uh, throughout the course of the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapters 5 through 7. So he starts, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes because he wants to show us that blessings come first, then the response, right? So blessings of God's favor, God's favor pronounced upon his people come first. This comes first, and then the requirements, the power to live uh, according to what God has commanded us um, is given to those who are already under God's favor. Why is this important? Because it's His work and not ours. Because it's His work and not ours that leads to our obedience. We don't do good works to obtain God's favor. We don't do good works to obtain God's favor. God's favor comes to us and empowers us to do good works. This is the order that that the New Testament gives us. So there are a few things that, as we thought through just the Beatitudes in general last week, that are good to revisit, because when we take these two, we're going to be thinking about a couple of these. A few things that specifically related to the, the Beatitudes. First of all, they describe all believers. These describe all believers. These are not random character traits that some of us have. These are not demeanors that some of us possess. But these describe all believers. This is a supernatural effect that coming under the power of of the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit is granted to us, when we trust Christ, um, these things are begun to be cultivated in us. Secondly then, so first they describe believers, all believers, not just certain groups of believers. Secondly then, they describe spiritual character first. Spiritual first. They describe spiritual character first. The, The blessings described here are outlined or given to us with the understanding that we would know the spiritual aspects of these first and then understand the implications for our lives physically or mentally or however other ways we might consider them. So 
So the third thing then is that the blessings described are both for now and for the future. So when we look at some of these, we see the blessings and when we see the things that Jesus says to his readers, um, or Jesus says to his hearers, Matthew says to his readers, we understand that these uh, blessings are both for now. There's a portion of this that's for now, and there's also a portion of this that's for the future. They'll be fully realized in the, in the future. So as we approach these statements for the next few weeks, we're going to keep these things in mind. We're going to see that they're building on one another, that Jesus is actually building on Sometimes I think we read the Beatitudes and we sort of take each one in a vacuum. We just think of them individually. We don't think of them as a whole unit. But I believe that Jesus is, is giving us a, an entire picture of what it means to be people who live uh, in the kingdom of heaven as those who are painting a portrait of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. We stand as those who are in Christ, who are giving the world a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So we together, gathered in this gigantic room with just a few of us here this morning, we together are painting a kingdom portrait for everything that's going on out there. Again, this might seem strange. Again, culturally, it's not that strange. But to the world as a whole, what we do together on Sunday mornings, what we do together regularly, looks strange. It looks weird. It looks completely different from most activities that people do on a Sunday morning. It looks like, it looks like a group of people standing around listening or singing some songs to a guy that they think died 2,000 years ago. So that seems strange to the world. That seems strange to the world. So we're going to see then that these build together, that they build towards a conclusion, that they build towards something that Jesus is trying to communicate, primarily that God is setting apart a people for himself, a people for his own possession, so that we might reflect or demonstrate or paint a portrait of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So today, then, we're going to consider verses, uh, verses 4 and Five. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So last week when we looked at verse 3, and blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We thought about a, an emptiness, right? A poverty of spirit. This is the starting point for those who are in the kingdom of heaven. There's this emptiness, and then, and then there's this filling that takes place through the remainder of the, uh, through the, remainder of the Beatitudes, Right? poor in spirit, emptiness, and then he begins to build back, build us back up, but not think with things that we think that we should be built up with, right? Mourning, meekness, right? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, a merciful uh, demeanor, uh, those who are pure in heart, peacemaking, persecution. These are not necessarily things that we think, once we are emptied, that we should be built up with. Rather, we think, we see the world and we think that we should be built up with things like, like strength, uh, with self-determination, with self-reliance, and, and ideas like that. That's, the word, that's where we begin, but Jesus paints a completely strange, different picture for us. So again, coming to a place of emptiness, this poverty of spirit, this is the starting place. This is where Jesus wants us to start. These are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven, those who come to God and say, I have nothing, there's nothing left. We must realize that in our spiritual bankruptcy and come to God with nothing, acknowledging that it is well, only by Him and by His grace that we are saved. Not a work of our not a work that we can do, but a work that He does on our behalf. So again, 
the second and third Beatitudes this morning in verses 4 and 5. Mourning and meekness. We're going to look at these in turn this morning. So first then, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Certainly, some of us in this room have experienced significant mourning in our lives. We've experienced the loss of a loved one. And that's where our minds go when we think about mourning. We think about losing a loved one. I think that's probably when you're torn away from someone. Um, I think that's someone who you love and you spend a significant amount of time with. That's where our minds go initially. That's mourning for us. Friends and family members that have passed, people we know and love. And this type of mourning is helpful in our understanding of what Jesus is talking about. But it's not. it doesn't paint the whole picture for us. It's not necessarily the point. It's important to remember then the things that we talked about as far as the Beatitudes go, that these are spiritual first. Spiritual first. So what does spiritual mourning look like? What does spiritual mourning look like? It shouldn't be thought of as a physical loss, but as a spiritual one. So what is the mourning that Jesus is talking about? Well, it's mourning over loss, that's right, but it's mourning over the loss of right relationship with God because of sin. It's mourning over uh, the understanding that who we are does not sync up with what God requires. Um, it's a mourning over the depth of our, our own depravity. So we see this exemplified in the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus did not sin, but he was thrust into a situation where sin was prevalent, where sin was all around him. And he lived a life completely honoring to his father, a sinless life. But he was thrust onto this scene where death and sin were running rampant. The prophet Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It's because of the, the, the uh, prevalent sin in the world that he entered into after being perfectly in, in the presence of God for uh, before time even began. G.K. Chesterton, a um, popular writer of the last century, writes at the end of his book, Orthodoxy. I'm going to lead, read this. This is a relatively lengthy quote. I'm going to read it to you. And as I close this, this is the end of his book. As I close this chaotic volume, I open again the strange small book from which all Christianity came. And I, and I am again haunted by a kind of confirmation. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels towers in this respect as in every other, above all the thinkers who ever thought themselves tall. His pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancients, and moderns were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face in the daily sight, such as far side of his native city. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomats are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple, and he asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say this with reverence. There was in this shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from men when he was on the mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abruptly silenced or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon this earth, and I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. Chesterton's language might be unfamiliar to us. That might not make a whole lot of sense to us as we look at it. But Jesus clearly did not display mirth or amusement here on earth. If you explore the Gospels clearly, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This shines through in the Gospels. 
This shines through. There's a popular movement a few years ago that wanted to make Jesus out to be this sarcastic, joking type. In reality, though, if you really do explore the Gospels, this close reading of the Gospels shows that that's not the case. There's a weight to the message that Jesus brings. There is a weight to the message that Jesus... He doesn't waste words or miss opportunities to instruct his disciples or the crowds. He speaks clearly. He speaks with weight. He speaks with authority. He doesn't avoid confrontation with the religious leaders. He sets the stage for our mourning as one who mourns. The Bible never tells us that Jesus laughed. We look at you think of that, okay, boy, that's a bummer picture of Jesus, right? It's a bummer picture of Jesus. But it's the one that the Bible gives us. He came clearly to deal with the world's greatest problem, sin. And he came into a context where everything was, 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 ran, was just being run over by sin. And he came to deal with sin comprehensively. Not just here or there, but comprehensively. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. That, uh, it, but in the meantime, he endured the cross. And so friends, what does, that, what does that mean? What does that mean for us to mourn as a people? What does that mean for us as a church, I think a couple of things. First, it's to take a look at, uh, an honest look at God and His holiness and His set-apartness. We were talking about the Sermon on the Mount and the intent to show us, the intent to show us that we as a people are set apart, that we are different, that we look strange to the world. So first, to mourn, it's to take an honest look at God and His holiness. And second, it's to take an honest look at ourselves and what was intended for us. To take an honest look at ourselves and what was intended for us. And then third, to take an honest look at our inability to please God on our own. Our inability to please God on our own. And I think this is where we get this all wrong. And I think this is where, at least in my day-to-day, -day, this is where I constantly struggle to get this. Um, I think I just think very little of who God is. Just in general. I think very little of who God is, and this is, the, this is the way that it sort of plays out. So you head to work, it's 10 a.m., you get there, do a little bit of work, it's 10 a.m., you start to get a little hungry. So you go to the vending machine. Your first cup of coffee is, has worn off, you go to the vending machine, you pop in 75 cents, you get a bag of Funyuns. Funyuns are delicious. This is how we think about God, though, right? He comes to mind when we need something. He comes to mind when we're when we're hungry for something, or when things just aren't adding up in our world. We come to God, we pop in a 75-cent prayer and expect a, a bag of Funyuns answer. That's the way that it goes. That's the way that we approach God. And we've reduced God to this vending machine, an automated snack dispenser, to satisfy our ever-changing desires. And this is not the portrait of the Holy God, completely set apart. We must mourn over our small, small view of who God is. We must mourn over our small view of who God is and long for a bigger picture, a grander picture of Him and His glory. We must long for a, a, a grander view of who God is and His glory. And when we have such a small view of God, we have a poor understanding then of who we are. 
and be like, who God intended us to be, who or why we live the way that we do. When in reality, our life is to be lived for Him and for others. This is how we glorify God, that when we want to live lives that glorify a vending machine, other people exist for our own convenience only, or they exist for us. They don't grant us the power to live but this does not grant us the power to live for others. This understanding of God is a vending machine. Vending machines have no expectations of us. They don't. They have no expectations of us. If your God is a vending machine, you will surely live a life that doesn't mourn over your sinfulness. Why would you? So our sin is widespread. It's prevalent and it's radical. We have a tendency to downplay it. Just as a people, we just have a tendency to downplay it, to say it's not that big a deal. We're not, we're not a people who, who, who think that throughout the course of our day, it's that big a deal. We don't believe, I, don't, I think we don't wrestle with the fact often enough that we actually, uh, in ourselves, that sin has the ability to separate us from God. We think little of its power. We think little of its impact. We go about our days constructing this kingdom in which we want to live, where we are king. And this is why we sin. Because we want to be king. Because we want to put ourselves in God's rightful place in our lives. You walk all over people because you have, you have that promotion in view. You sneak in a quick porn video because you think it will contribute to greater sexual fulfillment. You flirt with that coworker because you make it, it makes you feel something your husband no longer makes you feel. You take one drink too many because it makes you feel, or because it take the edge off the pain you feel. You complain about your life on social media because the reactions you get validate your frustrations. You pass off responsibility and your actions onto others because it's easier to play the victim. You gossip about others because it makes you feel better about your own shortcomings. When how we feel drives how we act, we've placed ourselves at the center of our lives. But blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they have a right view of themselves and they have a right view of the problem of putting themselves at the center. What makes this so hard? Why do we ignore this beatitude? Why do we ignore the blessed are those who mourn? I think because following Jesus in our culture has become existential. What do I mean by that? I think it has become something that is reduced to just an encounter that we have in our day to day. What do you mean to follow Jesus? Well, encounter God. We want that to work itself out in this kingdom that we've built ourselves. We want it to show that we are on the throne and that God is uh, available to our every whim. We want it to play out in our kingdom rather than the kingdom of heaven. So we chase experience that validates our pathetic little kingdoms. And when we see that things don't shape up the way that we think they should, we grow impatient and frustrated. And our lives, I mean, our lives are relatively easy. Let's, let's be honest. Like our lives are relatively easy compared to most of human history. Right? You can communicate with someone thousands of miles away with your thumbs. You feel muscle pain? There's a whole host of drugs that can re reduce that pain just at Walmart, just on the shelf. Would you like a hamburger? Hand someone a plastic square or rectangle and through a window and they'll hand you a hamburger. 
Our lives are relatively easy. There's no killing the cow that's involved in that. We ask the question, then why aren't things better? We have all this technology. We have all of these things. Why aren't things better? We ask that question regularly. The answer is simple, sin. The answer is simple, it's sin. There's no amount of education. There's no amount of work. There's no amount of experience that it can eradicate sin. You know, I miss God's standards all the time. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For they shall be comforted. And remember that the blessing is both for now and for the future. The blessing is both for now and for the future. Now, comfort is not necessarily for those who don't mourn, but we think for the idea of comfort a lot. Comfortable couches, comfortable clothes, comfortable shoes. We seek comfortable couch in response to the morning of loss of energy after a long day's work. We seek the comfortable clothes or comfortable clothes in response to the morning of the loss of movement in our neck after we've worn a tie all day. We seek comfortable shoes in response to the morning of the loss of feeling in our feet after we're wearing those high heels. That example wasn't for me. We, we know something's not right in our world, and we seek comfort. Any expression of earthly comfort that we have, any expression of earthly comfort or that you find in your world needs to point you to the future comfort that you'll find in the presence of Jesus. Speaking of this future, the prophet Isaiah writes, The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the, the, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress of, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That he may be glorified. Luke records Jesus reading the beginning of this passage as he tells his hearers that that is fulfilled on that very day. At the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, he says that this thing is fulfilled on that very day. The comfort that is promised to God's people is fulfilled in Christ. And comfort comes to those who mourn the loss of right relationship with God because of sin. It comes now through the understanding that the person of work of Jesus has rebuilt right relationship with God. And it comes in the future when that right relationship with God is fully realized. Friends, don't take your sin lightly. Seriously, don't take your sin lightly. Work to kill it. Paul writes to the church in Rome, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. Paul knew that a life marked by right understanding of sin would produce a desire to kill it. J.C. Ryle writes this, the heart that has really tasted the grace of Christ will instinctively hate sin. Are you putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Do you hate sin? When you think that you should be king, are you squashing with the truth that you serve another? When you're tempted to grow angry because of a perceived slight, kill it. When you're tempted to take a long second look at the woman who isn't your wife, kill it. 
When you're tempted to make a judgment about another's parenting, kill it. When you're tempted to cut corners at work, kill it. When you're tempted to glorify yourself and make yourself the center of the universe, kill it. John Owen wrote in the book, uh, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, do you mortify? Do you make your daily work? Be always at its whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Mourn over that which has the power to separate from you from God, but be comforted, friend. Be comforted by the fact that God's favor is on you. And that eternity holds the blessing of the fullest realization of your comfort. Eternity holds the fullest realization of your comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So that leads us now to the next idea that Jesus brings for us. Blessed are the meek. Watch now how he builds, right? Watch how he builds this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is a state of emptiness. Blessed are those who mourn an increased understanding of one's spiritual bankruptcy. Now meekness. And meekness is a funny word. This is not a word that we use regularly in our language. Someone in our community group the other night made the, the observation that these words that Jesus talks about are things that are we don't words that we don't use regularly. I don't think they're because they're antiquated words. I think that we don't use them regularly because they're weird, because they're strange, because they don't, they don't represent things that we or our culture values. So Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines the meekness simply. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. Simple. It's so important to see these first two Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn first, because the poverty of spirit and then the understanding of one's sin and its effects works itself out in, in sort of this outworking in verse 5. Blessed are the meek. This may be strange to the world as it looks at the followers of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he writes this, speaking of the church, speaking of the corporate gathering. This community of strangers possesses no inherent right of its own to protect its members in the world, nor do they claim such rights, for they are meek. They renounce every right in their own and live for the sake of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that the followers of Jesus don't retaliate when things are taken from them. Rather, they understand that the surest possession is a secure eternity spent with God. This can never be taken from them. Our surest possession can never be taken from us. It means that followers of Jesus don't view their lives as their own. Rather, they see it as belonging to their king. It means that followers of Jesus don't see their rights as something to be defended, but they see their rights as something to be relinquished or given up, because they are entitled to, uh, what they are entitled to is death, save the grace of God. 
And no doubt, like we've mentioned in the first two weeks, no doubt Matthew's readership would have looked at this and it would have been a shock to their system. They would have looked at this and thought that it would very much as so as it is to ours. But Jesus continues to plow down this path that no one in their right mind would want to follow. The promise for the meek is that they will inherit the earth. But the world looks like a statement and like that they think it's ludicrous. It's not the meek who inherit the earth. It's the politically and economically powerful. It's the ones who, who use the systems to their advantage, who don't care about viewing themselves in, in light of who God is, but rather using God to achieve their own ends. This mentality is widespread in our own context. If we don't do, hear this regularly, if we don't demand our rights as, as Christians, we'll lose this culture war. If we don't hold our positions of power as Christians, we will all be lost. If we admit sin or sin or shortcoming as Christians, we will lose our cultural influence. But Jesus makes it clear that the organizations and structures of men will not result in the inheritance of the earth. They will not result in the inheritance of the earth, but it's the ones who are meek, the ones who correctly assess themselves in light of who God is that will inherit the earth and live accordingly then in relationship to others. These are the ones who will inherit the earth. And again, this reinforces the notion that these are not things that are innate within us. These are not things that, that come to us that we possess by ourselves. But these are a supernatural quality, one that must be given by, to us by the Spirit of Christ. That's the only way that this actually works itself out. This is not obtained by trying harder to be meek. This is not our natural bent. Our wiring is to assess ourselves more favorably than is actually the case. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't don't think that highly of myself. Really? Meekness, a proper assessment of yourself, is predicated on correctly viewing your own sin. That's why this builds, right? From poverty of spirit to mourning over our sin and sinfulness to a correct assessment in light of those things. Correctly assessing our own sin and our inability to keep God's commands on our own. So what about the whole inherit the earth part? This is, this is troubling. This is a little bit difficult. It's not, it's, it's not that easy. What, what does that mean? It doesn't seem, doesn't it seem like the people who are opposed to meekness? Does it seem like people who don't measure, are, are not measured by that standard, doesn't it seem like they're the ones who are inheriting the earth? People game the system. They're the ones who get the things in the here and now. Is there a, is there a now aspect to this blessing? Sometimes I think we're tempted to just reduce this outcome to the future. Sure, we'll inherit the earth later. Remember, the blessings are both for here and now. John Stott writes this. I think this is perfect. The godless may boast and, and throw their weight around, yet real possession eludes their grasp. The meek, on the other hand, although they may be deprived and disenfranchised by men, yet because they know what it is to live and to reign with Christ, can enjoy and even possess the earth which belongs to Christ. Sort of like Princess Leia says to Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars A New Hope, 
The more you tighten your grip token, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Those who relinquish their rights, who don't elevate their own desires and needs to place, need, needs to, needs a place where they are always fighting for those desires and needs. These are the ones who are blessed. They can enjoy the earth as their inheritance now because they understand that they, they fall under the promises of God and the promises of God that are contained within are contingent on their service to the king. We can look together and be inheritors of the earth now because we understand that it all belongs to him. So in conclusion then, as we look together at these two Beatitudes, it's good to remind ourselves again of the, one of the prevalent themes of Scripture, the holiness, the, the set-apartness of God's people, that God is working consistently, constantly in our lives to set us apart. These pronouncements then of the Beatitudes of God's favor show us just that. These things, mourning and meekness, are markers of a set-apart people. The world isn't actively engaging in these things, and why would they? Why would they? The world likes self-confidence. Be your best you. You're a good person. Get yours. This is what the world tells us. These things seem good. But when we walk out of here today, we must know and understand and grapple with the depth of our own sin. Friends, you cannot understand the grace of God and the extraordinary immensity of His favor upon you if you don't understand the weight of your sin. It's that simple. Christianity for the last couple of centuries has been downplaying sin. Because it doesn't make us feel good. It makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Jesus surely doesn't shy away from it in the Sermon of the Mountain. We shouldn't either. That which has the power to separate you from God for all of eternity should be considered regularly. God didn't save you from point zero. He saved you from an infinite deficit. And in Christ, you've been granted an infinite abundance. No doubt, this week, you'll be faced with a situation where you're tempted to demand your rights. Where you're tempted not to act in the meekness that Jesus describes. You go to a restaurant. The food comes out a bit cold. A co-worker passes uh, an idea of yours as theirs. Something like this. We say, well, I deserve to pay, or what I pay for, I deserve, I deserve to have meet my standards. I deserve credit for my work. But it's the meek that Jesus says will inherit the earth. Those who properly assess themselves in light of who God is and relate to others without understanding. Again, these things are found in Jesus. He's the prime example of these qualities. We see this painted throughout the course of, of the Gospels. We see these things painted over and over again. While on the earth, he mourned the sin around him, the death of Lazarus, the fate of Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. But comfort was coming for his people, a comfort that could only come through his sacrifice. On earth, Jesus exhibited meekness, not demanding his rights or defending himself as he was falsely accused, mocked, scorned, shamed. He went to the cross not 
demanding more, but giving up everything. He did these things so that we could too. He gives us His Spirit, now us as the church. He gives us His Spirit to act, to live in these ways, to live in ways that are in step with what He shows us in the Beatitudes so that we might paint a portrait of the kingdom of heaven for the world around us. In a way that looks strange. It's an upside down kingdom. So, just by way of admonition here, this is where we'll end this morning. Don't go from here and forget what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Don't go from here and forget what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He just said, He didn't save you from zero. He saved you from an infinite deficit. An infinite deficit to an infinite abundance. The depth of your sin is, is vast. Paul calls out in Romans 7.24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is implicit. It is Christ who can and will deliver you. The more you see your sin clearly, the more you will rejoice in the one who saved you. Charles Spurgeon preached this, or I'll leave you with this this morning. It's a sermon titled, The Way. He said this, Let not your sense of sin make you think little of my Master. You are a great sinner, but He is a greater Savior. Do not say that you have matched Christ or overmatched Him. Come, Goliath sinner, the son of David can conquer thee or save thee yet. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let's pray.